Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As the royal mourning period ends, after so many lasts for Queen Elizabeth II, there are so many firsts for King Charles III, Camilla Queen Consort, and the new Prince and Princess of Wales. In addition to the royal news you need to know, we'll dive into the royal drama in Denmark and have an exclusive chat with Katie Nichol. Welcome to episode 72 of Podcast Royal. We are back on Podcast Royal. It is good to be out of the morning period and a little bit more back to normal. How are you this week? And we haven't done this in a few weeks. What are you into this week? <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's the great week. Um, so we were off from the pod last week. It's been super, super busy over here. I was out of town for work. Um I'm back in town this week, but I'm about to head out again for a girl's trip uh, with my mom and my sister. We're headed to New York City, so um, I'm really excited about that, and that's what I'm into, trying to wrap up all my work and get packed and um, get ready to go see the city. What are you into? Well, you are the busiest person ever, by the way, and have fun (laughs) in the city. So since our last episode, I had a birthday. I turned 36, so that was exciting and good to see you on Sunday for dinner and Um, happy birthday officially on the pod thank you so much so as for what I'm into this week I love getting listener emails we got a great listener email within the past couple of weeks from a listener named Mallory and she wrote us after hearing our discussion about Harry's military uniform last episode Mm. I wanted to read this email and share some interesting insight that Mallory gave. So she writes, hello, I am a longtime royal lover and a new time listener to your podcast, and I am loving it. Thanks, Mallory. Um, One thing I think is important to know when it comes to Harry's military uniform debacle, the law in the UK about this is different than in the US. So let me hop over to her email because she attached a photo that explained it. So this says, unlike in the US where veterans often wear uniforms For special occasions, retired British military personnel are not allowed to wear a uniform unless they are in an honorary appointment and have been authorized to wear one. So because Harry and Andrew, for that matter, are no longer in those honorary appointments as working royals, that would explain that. So um, Mallory, this is back to Mallory now. She continues, however, I will also say that this was very bad optics for the palace, and I think they realized this and changed the uniform decision. So that's good insight. And I always love, I know you do too, getting emails from listeners. So keep them coming and, you know, things all the time. I did read, I did read about the little differences between the UK and um, the US. And so thank you, Mallory, for calling that out for our other listeners and sharing that. That was awesome. Yeah. Well, shall we jump into the Royal Rundown or do you have a fashion pick you'd like to highlight this week? 
So no fashion pick this week. We've got so much on our reporting agenda day. We've got a lot to catch up on. We're kind of back in our normal swing of things, uh, but we'll do a fashion pick next episode. Uh, But I'll go ahead and kick us off with the Royal Rundown. So the Royal Mourning Period is officially over for the Royal Family. It came to an end on September 26th, but I was actually surprised, Rachel, to see some of the senior working royals out making appearances following the queen's funeral, actually before the mourning period had come to a close. You know, I really didn't expect to see them until they officially returned to their normal engagements. Um, But we saw Thursday, the 22nd, we saw the Prince and Princess of Wales. They were at Windsor Guild Hall and they were thanking those who helped, um, who were working the, the day of the funeral and helped manage the procession and the crowds. We also saw Princess Anne make an appearance that week, and she was actually thanking members of the military who were involved in special duties for the funeral. So she visited the Royal Navy at Portsmouth and members of the Army at St. Omer Barracks in Aldershot. And then lastly, we saw Prince Edward. He actually traveled to Estonia and Germany that same week, and he thanked troops who were deployed there for their commitment to the Queen. And, you know, I just thought this was really important to mention because it says a lot about the family. You know, when they're mourning the loss of a mother and a grandmother, they're also out thanking the public for their support of the queen. And I don't think anyone would have expected them to do that, but they did it anyway. And I just thought that was a great example of what being a royal really means and what a life in public service is really all about. Um, and so I don't know if that stood out to you, but I thought that was really a, a really kind thing that they did. Yeah, I think so too. I think it just goes back to the queen giving her life to service and them doing the same. I mean, they, they, there, there was a bit of a quiet period in the morning period, but not really. There were all, they were also out, as you said, thanking people. And I think that's pretty fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So we also got um, the queen's cause of death revealed. So her official cause of death came out and on the death certificate, it said she died at 3.10 p.m. of old age. I've never Um, heard of that. I mean, actually, I have. Yeah. Second, but Philip's cause of death was the same. But I've never heard of that in the U.S. Maybe. I don't know if that's not a thing here, but um, I just find that very interesting. And it's interesting to know the exact time of death because that would have been 9, 10 a.m. here. And you were, you and I were already in communication that this might be a thing by that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were. So, you know, yeah, I was going to say the, uh, the cause of death recorded on Prince Philip's death certificate is also old age. And, you know, listeners know he was 99 and she was 96 when they passed away. Um, And, you know, I have definitely heard people using old age as a cause of death in casual conversation. I think we can all think of someone who who maybe passed that and they were just really old and we weren't really aware of any other factors at play. Um, But it also got me wondering, Rachel, about this. And so I actually was doing a little Googling online and trying to figure out if this is actually an accepted cause of death on official documents. And I did find an article on Fox News that was published following Prince Philip's death. And it said that the head of the royal medical household um, was quoted saying that using old death, or I'm sorry, old age, old as death. An, 
<laughs> Using old age as an official cause of death is accepted when the person is over the age of 80 and they've seen a gradual decline in health over a long period of time. And in Prince Philip's case, you know, he had some other health issues. He had been in the hospital. Um, but according to the royal, uh, the head of the royal medical household, the specific issue that he was in the hospital for was not actually what, you know, led to his, his immediate death. So I don't know. I thought that was really interesting to note if we've got any listeners who are out there kind of wondering about that too, but, um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I'm glad you, you picked up on that also. Yeah. I, I remember that with Philip and just seeing it again, I just didn't realize that that was an official cause of death, but thanks for that insight. You learn something new every day. And I also want to point out that there is a new marker for the queen's final resting place. So there, as you said, at the top of the show have been so many firsts, um, as well as so many lasts for that matter. And when it comes to the queen, we have a new marker for her late majesty's final resting place. It is absolutely beautiful. If you haven't seen a photo of it, Jessica, I'm sure you have. It's surrounded by flowers and um, her parents, King George VI and the Queen Mother are right above her, their headstone. It's all one one headstone, but um, their names are above hers. And then, you know, just the permanency of seeing Queen Elizabeth II, 1926 to 1922 or 1922, 2022. What, what, what millennium are we in? What century are we in? I don't know. Um, 1926 to 2022, right next to her beloved Prince Philip. That, that was not lost on me. It's just, it's, it's such permanency. And of course we didn't get to see, um, the final service of, of the queen that was just limited to the family, but we did now get to see her, her marker and they are all reunited now and together again. And I think that's exactly where she wanted to be. That really stuck out to me too. Um, seeing the four immediate family members and Prince Philip in there, if you've ever read about Prince Philip or, you know, anything about his life as a child, he had a rough time. Um, and he, he really had been through a lot. And I thought, it was really special to see Queen Elizabeth there with her parents and her sister, and then to bring in Prince Philip as part of that family all united there together again. Um, I thought it was really special. Yeah, I think so too. And also you you mentioned this a second ago, but Princess Margaret um, was cremated. So her ashes are there as well, but mm-hmm. she, um, she doesn't, she, she was not buried because she was cremated. So, uh, but she is there as well. So the Queen's four immediate family members. And of course her beloved husband are all with her. And that feels really correct. That feels exactly as it should be, which of course was the queen's wish all along. So the morning period ended September 26th. After that social media got some changes, eagle-eyed viewers or not even eagle-eyed couldn't miss it um, to reflect that we have a new sovereign. Now the Royal family social media. So their Instagram, their Twitter, their Facebook now feature, of course, Charles and Camilla. And the website was updated as well, which features Charles and Camilla prominently as it should and updated biographies of William and Kate under them are Edward and Sophie Anne, and other working members of the Royal family. Naturally, as ever, much ado has been made about Harry and Meghan. They have been moved to the bottom of the website along with Andrew, as of course they're no longer working royals and Prince and Princess Michael of Kent have been removed from the website. 
So there are a lot of changes happening to, it just seems like there, again, there's so many firsts, so much newness. So, I mean, as, as of course it should be with a new sovereign, but um, speaking of first on September 23rd, Buckingham Palace released its first official portrait of Charles at work, which was taken on September 11th. So very early into his reign alongside the famous red boxes that his mother was known for. Those, of course, contain uh, diplomatic papers and uh, just paperwork for the king or queen, the monarch to work through. And poignantly in that photo, you can see a black and white photo of his parents, her late majesty and Prince Philip. That's behind him, Charles. And that was actually, I learned a gift to the late queen from her father, King George VI on Christmas day of 1951, which the queen had no idea, or she was the princess at Princess Elizabeth at the time, had no idea that that would be her last Christmas with her father. He died about six weeks later in, um, very, in an untimely death that she was not expecting. Well, you know, to go along with the new portrait of King Charles, we also saw his cipher was released mm -hmm. and that has been circulating all over social media as well. If you haven't seen it, it is the letter C for Charles intertwined with the letter R for Rex, which is Latin for King. And the third um, initial inside, inside the letter R um, is got the... Sorry, what am I saying? <laughs> the, the three, <laughs> the three. Um, for the third is inside of the R. Atop the C, we've got the crown. And there's also a second version of the cipher um, of the Scottish crown as well. So that would obviously be used in Scotland. It's a lot harder to describe a cipher than you might think. It's hard. It's hard <laughs> no, it, to do. But you got to describe the, the initial for the third. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's the three, the, the Roman numeral three eyes. Yeah, mm -hmm. the Roman numerals area. Mm -hmm. So the Royal Mint also released a new coin with King Charles' face on it. Um, it's, you know, it's a really big time for him right now. In addition to, to his cipher, we've got these two new coins. Um, if you haven't seen those, it's a side profile. Um, he's facing the left. So fun fact for listeners who don't know this, every new monarch will face the opposite direction from their predecessor on the coin. So Queen Elizabeth faced mm -hmm. the right. King Charles faces the left. Um, and Charles is not wearing a crown in the image of him, which is also in line with past kings. Other kings have not worn a crown. Um, you may know Queen Elizabeth was wearing a crown in her image. Mm -hmm. um, so the coins will initially be available for purchase for collectors. And then the 50p coin will be circulated for normal use in the coming months. Of course, any old que uh, coins with the queen's image will also still be accepted as valid currency. Um, and then the Royal Mail announced that they have uh, plans to print new stamps with King Charles' image. We likely won't see those available until they get rid of all of their current inventory with the queen's image on those stamps. So if you want a stamp with the queen and you're in the UK and can get them, you should go buy them now. Yeah, absolutely. Just so, I mean, again, I hate to belabor this, but just so much new, you know, it's, just, we've never, I mean, most people, unless they were around in 1952, have not seen this shift happen, you know, and it's just so much that, you know, logically you think about 
the cipher, the website, the social media, the, the coins, but we've just never seen it play out. And I just feel like every day we're living a little bit more of history. Yeah, definitely. And I want to mention one more item regarding news the week following the death of Queen Elizabeth. I know we touched a little bit at the top of the episode on some stuff that went on, um, but it did come out that palace staff at Clarence House received a notice informing them that household operations at Clarence House would uh, be closed in the coming future. They're going to close that down now that Charles has taken on his role as king. And as a result of this, um, some of those positions at Clarence House aren't going to be needed anymore. So this notice went out to, I think it was more than 100 employees. Um, I will say that they did note the jobs which are in jeopardy. Uh, those employees would be offered assistance in locating a new position, whether it be across one of the other royal households or if they needed help finding employment externally, um, they would be offered assistance with that as well. Um, and it also notified those teammates that they would be getting a larger redundancy payment than, you know, what is minimally required. I'm not sure how much that would be. Um, So this all came out. I know there was a lot of discussion in the news about, you know, how it was handled. And I will say, I think the timing could have been better. Apparently the letters were received during the service of Thanksgiving for the queen. Mm. Um, You know, while I thought it was great that they were offering assistance to help them relocate into a new position, Um, I think maybe they could have thought of a little bit more appropriate time to release those letters. So I wanted to get your take on that. If you heard about that and and what your thoughts are. Yeah, I had heard about that. And I mean, that, that timing seems a little cruel. Um, you know, I think maybe in the back of their minds, they thought that this would happen eventually, but the queen passed away. We, again, we say she passed away quickly and unexpectedly. I mean, how unexpected can it be when you're 96 years old? But still, I think that it happened, you know, relatively quickly. And I don't think, I mean, I don't think you're ever ready to lose your job. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't think you're ever ready to be downsized, even if you know that it's a possibility and that it could happen. Um, But I, I am, I guess I'm glad that they're giving them some help, but the timing seems wrong. And I, I just, again, you can, you can anticipate cuts and like furloughs, and this isn't even a furlough. This is a permanent, you know, this is their job is over, Mm -hmm. but you're never ready for that, you know, and especially to, and and this is, you know, that this staff worked for her majesty and they knew her likely, or if they didn't know her, they've, they've seen her and Mm -hmm. it's probably a very emotional time for them, you know, just grieving her loss. I mean, I know it's an emotional time for us and we've never been in the same room as her. And so I can imagine that the double whammy of, you know, losing your job and losing someone that you cared about is probably pretty tough. Yeah, definitely. And and I totally agree. I mean, I think they probably did anticipate that that would come, but I feel like maybe if they could have delayed it till after the royal period or after the funeral, or, you know, like somewhere where it wasn't right in the middle of of all of these big events going on, um, I think yeah. it would have been, would have looked a little bit better. So. Well, I, I think that's a fine point. They could have delayed it until September 27th mm-hmm. and that, I think that would have been okay. But anyway, so, well, 
some better news on the first day that they could, which was September 27th, and that is just a day after the royal mourning period ended, William and Kate visited Wales for the first time as Prince and Princess of Wales. Of course, obviously not the first time they visited Wales. They were just there over the summer, and uh, they kicked off their visit in Anglesley, which is where they lived from 2010 to 2013. Very important years in their lives, as during this time they got engaged, they got married, and they became parents to Prince George. And Wales is a place that clearly means so much to members of the royal family, not the least of which Charles, who was, of course, Prince of Wales for the majority of his life. His first state visit was announced as he and Camilla will host South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa and his wife, Dr. Shepo Motsepe, at Buckingham Palace this November. And actually, this is interesting to note because of COVID, this is actually the first state visit since former U.S. President Donald Trump visited the U.K. in 2019, which seems like an actual huh. lifetime ago. So um, we will probably be seeing some tiaras on Camilla and Kate come late November when South Africa, South Africa's president visits. So that is something to look forward to. Well, that is really exciting. And I don't think I had really thought very much about how long it had been since we had Mm -hmm. an event like that. Yeah. And then after COVID ended, the queen just stayed at at Windsor. And so there were no state visits. So uh, it's, it's again, like that, the Trump visit seems like an actual lifetime ago. That's right around when I started covering the Royals. So it's hard to believe that it's been well over three years since then. Well, the palace also released uh, a new photo over the weekend of some members of the royal family together. So we saw King Charles and the Queen Consort, and we saw the Prince and Princess of Wales um, together. It was taken the night before the Queen's funeral. You know, everyone looked great, but Rachel, I noticed something that kind of bugged me a little bit, and I have to mention it here. Did you notice that William did not have his armor on Catherine? I, I did actually. Um, so, I, did. <laughs> I know this. I, I know people have been chatting about this online. Um, listeners may recall, you know, during the days following the Queen's death, there were a lot of comments on social media um, about, you know, Harry and Meghan held hands a lot. We didn't see William and Catherine really doing that. And I was actually okay with that in that moment. Um, you know, holding hands or showing public displays of affection is not um, it's not something that they're not allowed to do because of royal protocol. If they want to do that, they can, but typically they follow um, what the monarch is doing. And so out of respect for the queen, we usually don't see them showing public displays of affection. We know that she um, and Prince Philip really didn't do that. Um, And we also know that William, you know, he's really professional. He's very, um, very focused on his job in, in a professional capacity. Um, so I really didn't, it really didn't bother me that we didn't see them holding hands, um, in, in their official appearances, but I did feel differently about this photo and, and here's why. So, you know, we saw in the picture, Prince Charles had his arm around Camilla. Um, we know that while they do typically remain professional in their official appearances at the same time, they're still a family. And we do want to see that personal side of them as well. And, and like I said, you know, William's really focused on that personal aspect of his role. Um, but lately we've seen that the public responds really favorably when he shows us a glimpse of his personal side and who he truly is. And I think we've seen that a few times in recent weeks as he's talked about his grandmother and his family. Um, 
And so when we see Charles and Camilla there with their arm around each other, I see, you know, Catherine over there and she's got her <laughs> arm back behind William. And I really just want him to put one of his arms around her and kind of embrace mm -hmm. her in that, in that family moment. And I would have loved to have seen that. So that just kind of uh, bugged me a little bit, uh, but otherwise it was a really great photo. No, I noticed that too. I noticed a lot of things in that photo. First of all, um, that photo is, it's a beautiful photo. Um, Kate in particular just looks amazing, but it's, it's such a tough time to take a picture because you are, you are deep in mourning. The next day is the queen's funeral. You're hosting 500 some dignitaries at Buckingham palace. Charles to me, at least looks like he's been crying. Um, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't blame him a bit if he was. And so, you know, you've got Camilla and Charles, you know, with their hands on each other, kind of, I mean, as comfort, because they're in a very difficult week and a very difficult day and a very difficult situation. And, and yet they're mourning and they're all in black, but they're also all smiling. And so it's just like a very like strange, it's, it's a beautiful photo, but it's also, and it's taken by Chris Jackson of Getty, by the way, who has been a guest on this show, have to plug that, but it's, it's a beautiful, it's a stunning photo, and it definitely represents the future of the monarchy. That's um, the future of the monarchy for the next generation, but it's also just like you, you feel for them because it's just such a difficult time to take a picture. You know, it's like when, like how many, mm -hmm. how many times are you at the funeral of your grandmother and they're like, let's take a picture. And I mean, they're, they're going to distribute it worldwide. Never. Right. You know, it's just, mm -hmm. again, like such a strange Royal juxtaposition, but I also want to point out um, an interesting fact that listeners may have missed. So there's actually three princes of Wales in the photo. Do you know where the third one is? Obviously, Charles, William. Do you know where the third one is? Oh, I need to look at this photo again. Was there a portrait in the background mm -hmm. that I missed? Yes, there's a portrait <laughs> of King George IV behind them. I don't know if that was planned or just a happy accident, but he was named um, Prince of Wales within, I think, days of his birth in the 1700s. 1762 is the number oh, that wow. comes to mind. So there's actually three Princes of Wales in the photo. There's a fun fact to take to your dinner party, but I hear you. I mean, it's just like such an awkward, like, what do you, it's kind of like, what do I do with my hands? What do I do? Do mm -hmm. I smile? Like, do you smile? Do you, I mean, you don't want to look too happy. It's just, it's a difficult balance. So. No, and I, I'm so glad that you brought that up. And I think that's a really great point because it is, it's a picture with so much, you know, so many mixed emotions going on. Yeah. And at that point in the week, they're so tired. I mean, they're probably so not even thinking about where to put their arms or where to stand, you know? And so I think that's a really good point. Um, and I've tried to, you know, and, and that was no, no shade at Prince William for that at all. Oh, I just, no, you no. know, I love, I love seeing moments of affection when, when we get it. Um, but I have been trying to give them so much grace during this time. Um, you know, they do have all eyes on them and it's a, it's a hard time. You know, it's not just a job, it's a family. And so I, I'm appreciate you calling that out. William has been known to put a hand on the, on the small of Kate's back. And I love yes. seeing him do that. Yes. So, okay. Well, we are going to close the Royal rundown, but first we want to uh, give a couple dates to look forward to before the end of the year. So the Earthshot prize awards will be on December 2nd that the date is, new since we last recorded in Boston. We already knew that. The Crown season five will premiere on Netflix on November 9th. Can't wait for that. 
and archetypes, Megan's Spotify podcast today, the day we're recording, which is October 4th, after a month-long hiatus for the morning period has returned. So speaking of archetypes, we never got a chance to discuss this as well as the cut article because we were on break for the month of August and the first week of September and then Her Majesty passed away and it just didn't feel right to discuss this during the morning period, but the morning period is over. It's October now. So let's talk about Meg. Hey listeners, we recorded a deep dive into the Archetypes podcast and the cut article that has been getting so much attention among royal followers. In our discussion, we break down the claims made in the article and we don't hold back on sharing our opinions and takeaways. We've decided to release this segment as a bonus episode that will drop in the coming weeks. So stay tuned to learn more about this release and how you can listen. Well, let's move into royals around the world, because if we think that the British royal family is dramatic, they're not the only ones. Yeah, we've, we've got, man, a full episode today. Um, really but before we, before we wrap up this portion, we'll do royals around the world, um, which I, I did mention on our Instagram that we would chat about today. So Rachel, this is a pretty hot topic this week, and it is hitting close to home for the British royals. The Danish royal family has been in the news and, you know, many people who don't typically follow along with this family are privy to what's been going on recently. I did a poll on our Instagram account today to ask listeners if they've been following along with this story. And last time I checked, 92% of people said that they were following along, Um, 8% have not. So for the 8% who want a quick update, You may remember after Queen Elizabeth's death, we actually talked on our podcast about Queen Marguerite. I I think that's how you pronounce her name of Denmark. Mm -hmm. She was celebrating a Jubilee year this year and following Queen Elizabeth's death, she is now the only reigning female monarch in Europe. And I believe I want to mention really quickly that we got, or we slash you really got picked up in the British tabloids for talking about her and praising her. (laughs) So go, go you. Yeah, um, so she has made a tangible effort to slim down the Danish monarchy. She just announced recently that on January 1st, 2023, her second son's four children will lose their prince and princess titles as well as their HRH status. And their new titles will be His Excellency Count of Montpezant or Her Excellency Countess of Montpezant. I'm not sure how you say that. I'm trying my very best. Um, (laughs) The grandchildren, uh, they do maintain their spots in the line of succession, but as the announcement explained, um, this change will really allow them to have more control over the direction of their lives. You know, they won't be tied to the responsibilities that come with an affiliation with the Royal House of Denmark. So, um, you know, she said it's something that she's been considering for a really long time, and she made the decision with their best interest in, in uh, mind. But Rachel, as you may guess, the drama comes in with their reaction to her decision. So um, her her grandchildren, their ages range from 23 down to 10 um, from, from Prince Joachim, which is her second son. So he has, his two oldest children are from his first wife, Alexandra, and his two youngest are from his current wife, um, Marie. His first wife actually was in the news. She made a comment. She kind of 
stirred the media. She said that they are saddened by this decision. They're in shock. She said the children feel ostracized as though their identities have been taken away from them. Um, a royal correspondent did say that Prince Joachim was first told about the change back in May, so it really shouldn't be a complete surprise. Um, but Prince Joachim says he was only given five days notice ahead of the announcement, and um, his family is claiming that, you know, they're disappointed and surprised by the news. So, you know, as you can imagine, this blew up in the media. I think you know, it does sound really similar to the, I'm going to give them one of those like Brangelina names. Yeah. Harry and Meghan. Mary. <laughs> the Harry and Meghan story circulating, you know, regarding Archie and Lilibet and whether or not they'll receive prince and princess titles. And I really don't think this story would have gotten so much attention had the Harry and Meghan story not been in the news. Um, but because they're similar issues, I think it's really blown up. But Following this, you know, response from Prince Joaquin's family, Queen Marguerite did issue a follow-up statement earlier this week. Um, I shared it on our stories today, and she acknowledges that she didn't anticipate their reaction to be like this, um, but she does appear to be standing by her decision, and she offered some interesting food for thought uh, behind why she made this choice. So she explains her consideration um, of the future and modernization of the monarchy. And she makes the point that holding a royal title really means that you've got commitments and duties that um, should lie with fewer members of the family, right? It's going to tie you to a lot of these obligations. And she views her decision as future-proofing the monarchy. She makes a point to say that she made this decision both as a queen and as a mother and a grandmother. Um, and she says no one should doubt that her children and grandchildren are her pride and joy. Um, and so, you know, she goes on to apologize for any hurt it may have caused. Um, but I just wanted to mention the story and bring it up because this is something that's probably looming over Charles right now. It's a difficult decision that he's going to have to make himself before too long. Um, and there are other royal households who have had to do this aside from the Danish royal family. So in 2019, the royal family of Sweden did something similar. They announced that the younger uh, two children of the monarch who is Princess Madeline and Prince Carl Philip. We've talked about them on the podcast before. Um, they would no longer be part of the royal household. And I thought the way they handled it was so impressive. They were a united front. The children um, came out and made statements and they were very positive. Princess Madeline said she knew that this was a long time coming. Prince Carl Philip said he saw it as a positive to have more freedom over his and his family's lives. Um, and Princess Madeline actually lives in the U.S. now, so she and her family are in Florida. And I do want to note Prince Joachim of Denmark. He and his family actually currently aren't living in Denmark. They reside in Paris at the moment. And I just think this is an important note to call out because you've got people who are acting really upset, like they deserve these titles and, you know, the maybe the privilege that comes with, with being part of a member of the royal family. But should they have that if they're not living in the country and they're so removed from what's going on there? I mean, is it really feasible for them to be able to uphold those responsibilities when they're not even close to home? So I don't know if you have thoughts about that. We did have um, 
someone ask us today about how we think Charles will handle the Harry and Meghan situation. Um, but I feel like I just, I just spoke quite a lot here. So I'll let you jump in. Well, I think Charles has always expressed his desire for a slimmed down monarchy. He's never expressly said what that means, but um, definitely the trimming of the fat. And I think that Charles is probably honestly watching the situation in Denmark and how it unfolds as kind of a test pilot and a test run for what he might have to do. I mean, I think the parallels are strikingly similar because, you know, the second son and Harry's the second son and Harry lives out of the country and Joaquin lives out of the country. And I mean, just the parallels are, are too close to be ignored. And I think he's probably watching this story with very vested interest and wondering what to do himself. Because as of this moment, as of today, um, on the Royal Family line of succession, on the Royal Family website, Archie and Lily are still master and miss. And they're not, uh, they should be technically under the letters patent of 1917, Prince and Princess, because their grandfather is the monarch, but that hasn't happened yet. So um, I think well, that you can't ignore the parallels here. Yeah, I mean, so my takeaway from this is I don't think we'll see an immediate move or, or change regarding the Sussex children, um, you know, titles. I do think he is assessing what's going on with the Danish royal family right now and thinking about how, you know, this might fit um, the British royal family doing something similar. But I, I don't think he wants to make the mistake of, you know, <laughs> being, you know, accused of giving five days notice or, or anything like that. I think he's really going to put some thought to this. One thing we know about Charles, though, is we've seen him solidify the changes within the family that he's known for a long time he really wants to make, right? So right out of the gate, Camilla was queen consort. He's wanted that for a long time. Right out of the gate, William and Catherine were prince and princess of Wales. I'm sure he's known he was going to do that for a long time. These are members of the royal family that he knows are committed and loyal, and they're going to be around serving um, the, the public. And we've also known, as you said, he wants a slim down monarchy focused on working royals. Um, so, you know, if I had to take a guess, I would say, you know, we're not going to see any immediate change in the next few mm -hmm. months. Um, but ultimately, I don't expect um, the Sussex children to be given prince and princess titles. Um, I do think we'll continue to see a slimming down of the monarchy and uh, putting more responsibility on the current working royals. That would be my guess. Well, and to tie up kind of something we talked about in an earlier episode. So, um, I think this now dropping all kinds of dates on y'all, but the Regency Act of, I think, 1937 says that the counselors of state, remember this conversation, will be the spouse. So that would be Camilla. And then the um, four members of the line of succession that are um, over 21. Well, that would have included Beatrice, but now, and Andrew as well. Now I'm hearing that Beatrice and Andrew are not going to be counselors of state. He's okay. truly slimming down the monarchy. So, I mean, I think he is being, he's not making any rash decisions, which is good for him. But I think that he is going to keep true to his word to, I mean, Andrew for sure is probably going to be persona non grata. Um, those brothers have a strained relationship anyway, but um, Harry is his son. So it's going to, I think he's trying to be very thoughtful 
and very cognizant about how he handles this. He's not rushing in, into any decision. I'm sure that when Megan wanted to meet with Charles, it was probably about all of this, probably trying to um, convince him to let, just for, if nothing else, for security's sake, to let um, Archie and Lily have the prince and princess styling. Um, but we'll, you know, it'll be very interesting to see all the things that, um, that happen because yeah. I think it's very telling that they don't have the prince and princess title and it's been nearly a month since the queen's passing. Well, I think, you know, to your point, he really cares about his relationship with the family and, you know, with Harry and he does not want to jeopardize that. And so I think what we're seeing happen is he's making quick decisions on the things that he feels confident about and the things that he's trying to navigate carefully because he's got to balance family with, you know, duty to the crown and, and what that looks like. And, and, that means a lot to him, right? In this role. And mm-hmm. so he's got to figure out how to navigate that carefully. And that's why I don't think we're going to see a quick decision on that. Um, I think he's going to figure out um, how to do that in a way that feels fair and loving, but still true to the way that he feels the monarchy should look um, in, in these modern times, which is slimmed down, I think. Yeah. Well, back to yeah. Denmark, that's one of the juiciest royals around the world stories we've had in a long time. And I want to say that we were the first to do Royals around the world. Please don't ever forget that. So we love it. We <laughs> love these, we love these, we love these Royals around the world. Cause look, the British Royal family has its ups and downs, it's roller coaster moments, but so does uh, Monaco. So does Sweden. So does like, I'm sitting there thinking like Carl Phillips role was downgraded, but did you know that Carl Phillip was born the heir, but then pro- I can't ever say this word promogenitor. Um, was enacted and so because the birth order is uh, Victoria Carl Philip Madeline and so originally Carl Philip was the heir because he was a boy well then promo I can't ever say this for promogenitor was enacted in in um, Sweden and that means that the firstborn regardless of gender is the heir so then Victoria became the heir so he so Carl Philip was born the heir then was the spare and now has no title and we don't hear a word from him Cause he's just so beautiful. He's just too busy being beautiful. But um, anyway, it's like Royals around the world are so fascinating. We will continue to deliver that, um, that great content. The Denmark story is one for the books. Um, it would probably be one for the books, even without the British Royal family tie-in, but it's especially one for the books because of it. So great reporting, A++++. Well, thanks. Um, So listeners, we've had a really long episode today. We've got one more little segment that we're really excited It's huge. We're (laughs) so excited. As if this episode wasn't amazing enough, we've got Katie Nichol on the show today, which like loved her so much. We had the absolute pleasure of speaking to one of the most prominent royal experts of our generation, Katie Nichol. She's here on the episode to chat about her new book, which is out October 4th. So take a listen to our conversation. When you think of the term royal expert, Katie Nichol is likely the first to come to mind. She is a contributing editor to Vanity Fair and contributes not just in print, but as a broadcaster on networks like Sky News and BBC, as well as Good Morning America, Entertainment Tonight, and The View, among many others. The new royals, Queen Elizabeth's Legacy and the Future of the Crown, her latest book is out as of today. Katie, welcome to the show. It's an honor to have you here today. Well, hello, Rachel and Jessica. Thank you so much for having me on Podcast Royal. Thank you for being here. So the timing of your book 
is impeccable, not even one month after Her Late Majesty's passing, which of course you never could have known about when you were writing the book. You wrote the book long before you knew you'd actually hear the King's speech before your publication date. And this is what you wrote in the book, quote, the King's speech, the address Charles will make to the nation on his accession has already been written. It has been refined and rehearsed and is being kept under lock and key until it is needed. This will be the most important address of his life partly an obituary of what or rather who has gone and partly a promise of what is to come. Given the turmoil of recent years, it also amounts to a defense of his realm. It could hardly be a more perilous period for the new Charles III. His king's speech will be a critical moment for his own reign and for Williams. The response to his words, whether they're warmly welcomed, derided, or worst of all, ignored, will tell the Duke of Cambridge, who of course now is the Prince of Wales, what kind of shape the monarchy will be in by the time he comes to inherit, end quote. So that's a long quote, but I wanted to include all of it because it's just so prescient that you're writing this, having no idea that by October 4th, your book's release date, the King's speech will have been made and we will have heard it. So let's start here. Did the King's speech, now that we know what it says, live up to that critical moment? Oh, I think absolutely. And wasn't it exactly a manifesto? Um, wasn't it the most beautiful tribute to his darling mama? Um, and I think I stand by everything I wrote. Um, it was an absolutely critical speech. It's one that I think people will always remember. And in fact, when you think about it, the king ticked every single box in that speech. He quashed any speculation that he might be handing over the reins to William, which has you know, long been mooted and speculated about. He vowed to serve for his whole life, just like his mother did. He conferred titles on the prince and princess of Wales um, immediately. He paid tribute to his wife, Camilla, and he also included Harry and Meghan in what I think was a really beautiful and inclusive way by first name terms. He spoke about his love for them and, and wished them well with their, with their ventures overseas. So, you know, really he covered all of the important bases and he, he made it clear that as King, he, his role will change and he will have to hand some of what he was doing over to the next generation. And of course that, that falls to, to William and Kate as Prince and, Prince and Princess of Wales. So it was a really important speech. Um, I think it was incredibly well received. And, you know, I think part of, part of what made it so powerful was, was Charles's emotion um, in that speech. You could tell that he meant every word that he'd written and probably labored over for, for years um, and, and refined and finessed right up until the last moment. But it was, I believe, his most important speech. And I believe it's one that will stay with all of us for, for many years to come. I want to follow up on that. Um, so how does it feel now in the early days of King Charles III's reign to watch what you wrote in the book come to life? Well, it's been just an extraordinary period of time. I mean, I've covered the royals now for the best part of you know, nearly two decades. And, you know, without a doubt, without a doubt, the, the death of the queen has been the biggest story of, of my career. I covered the the period leading up to the funeral and the funeral day itself for the BBC as a commentator, which was a, an enormous privilege and a, and a real honor. Um, and, you know, I've done royal weddings and I've done well, two royal funerals now. And um, 
it it was just an event on a on a scale like nothing I'd ever covered before. So just reflecting on on that moment on on the king's speech, which was really his his preface, I suppose, to his reign. Um, I I think we're just in for a really interesting period of time for the monarchy. Um, obviously, it's not it's as I said in the piece that I wrote for Vanity Fair, which was called the king's speech, based and and largely excerpted from my book. You know, the path isn't necessarily going to be straightforward and easy. There are challenges and obstacles ahead. But from everything we've seen of the king thus far, you get the feeling that we're in very safe hands and that the monarchy is in very safe hands. Well, let's stay on Charles for a moment, because as we are in such early days of his reign. So I want to quote your book again, because you say it better than I think I ever could. You write, Charles, with Queen Consort Camilla by his side, will face his own challenges. He cannot expect the same reverence his mother has earned after more than 70 years on the throne, and he will reign during very different times and in a society that increasingly questions why the United Kingdom is still beholden to a hereditary monarchy. While Charles will be the next head of the Commonwealth, there is uncertainty over what this family of nations will look like in the future. Charles is determined the monarchy will not die out with him. So what will he do, Katie, to ensure that that does not happen? Well, he's not going to want the Commonwealth to die out with him because it was a very important part of his mother's life, um, started by King George VI, this voluntary organization of nations. And, um, you know, the spotlight has very much been on the Commonwealth. Barbados has become a republic. Um, Jamaica's sort of, we know, pretty much set to follow its lead. And, and I'm sure others will follow. So the king really has his work cut out for him in terms of now assessing how that that commonwealth of nations is going to look like and i think inevitably he recognizes and accepts that it's going to change but i believe i think he believes that there's a lot of good that the commonwealth can still do the the key to the success of the monarchy i think has always been its ability to change and to move with the times and you know i think the king is acutely aware of that and so the commonwealth is is unlikely to look very unlikely to look as it did under his mother's reign it's going to look different but I think you know there will be there will be a way for it to still exist as a voluntary as a voluntary organization um you know the king has got the issues of keeping the united kingdom united as, as something else which is really enormous and very very important to him to contend with um he he also faces i spoke to a, a very good constitutional historian dr anna whitelock and she was a wonderful interviewee and she she said to me that she believed the greatest threat to charles's reign would be apathy that the people just simply wouldn't care and i think we're still in a period of time where the nation is still coming to terms with the loss of its longest reigning monarch there is a great tide of goodwill to king charles and queen consort camilla um and really now it's down to charles to make sure that he can um continue um that support and and continue to connect with the people i was at Buckingham Palace the day that the King came back from Balmoral and it was an extraordinary experience standing outside the gates of Buckingham Palace with a huge crowd who were very quiet because this was a crowd in mourning this was less than 24 hours since the, the announcement that the Queen had died and as Charles's convoy of cars pulled up there was no saying which way the public mood was going to go applause seemed wrong at that moment because this was a nation in shock and in mourning 
And yet when Charles stepped out of the car, the, there was applause. There were cheers for Charles. I, I heard several cheers of God save the king. It was the most extraordinary moment. And you could see the king's face almost light up at this reception that he was getting because there was no guarantee that he was going to be given the warm welcome that he was. And as he got out of his car, he went and shook hands with people. He even accepted a kiss from, from one well-wisher. And then he did something that I've never seen any monarch do before. He walked through the gates of Buckingham Palace with the Queen Consort on foot. And I felt that that was such a, a significant moment and so telling of, of what perhaps we, we can expect from the reign of King Charles III. Yeah, I, I agree, Katie. I feel like we've seen a lot of emotion from him in these recent weeks, and um, we've seen a lot of, of him from a personal side, which I think has been really impactful for people. Um, you know, we know Charles is almost 74, and he'll have a much shorter reign than his mother. And you write about this. You say that because of his older age, he'll essentially be a transitional king. But you also note that that doesn't mean he'll sit back in his role and simply mind the firm until William takes over. You say his lifetime as a royal understudy will actually make him an exemplary leader who will ask the tough questions and, and shine a light on issues that are important to him. So from your perspective, what will a reign under King Charles be like? Well, I, as I say in the book, I don't think, you know, yes, I think he will be a transitional king, but I don't think he's going to be in any way ineffective. Um, I, I think he's waited a long time for this for this role. He has waited a long time for this role and he and he has been able to have a lot of time to think about what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. I mean, for the book, I spoke to quite a few former aides who'd worked, one who'd worked with um, the prince for the best part of 20 years, Patrick Harrison, um, who was fascinating to speak with. And, and, you know, some of my sources did agree to go on the record, which, you know, is, is I think always a great achievement as a royal author. So many sources are always anonymous by the very nature of royal reporting. Um, but it, it's always wonderful when, when someone says, no, I am happy to go on the record. And, and Patrick was, and he said to me, you know, that the, the king in, in his role as King Charles will continue to, to, pursue the the or to put the spotlight on on the issues he cares about you know the environment is clearly so important to him he's passionate about leaving the planet in a better place for the next generation for safeguarding it for the future and he's spoken about that very movingly as a grandfather um i think together with camilla i was told by one of the duchess's um charities that she thinks they're going to be a real powerful duo putting the spotlight on the most vulnerable sectors of society. And I think that's absolutely what they're going to do. Um, you know, they're, they're gonna try and put the great back into Britain. I, I think they, they truly believe that this is a wonderful country. It's a wonderful kingdom. They want to keep it united. They're going to work very hard. And I think they're absolutely committed to, to making a success of it. And I think, you know, they have, the, the, I think the signs are already there that they, that they can do that and they will. Well, of course, Charles comes behind an impossible act to follow. His mother, Queen Elizabeth II, who you write, quote, through the ups and downs, any, as any country endures, you have continuity embodied in a woman who has not put a foot wrong since 1952. So I'd love for you, and you mentioned it a little bit at the top of the interview, but to talk to us about your experience 
covering the funeral and how you're handling coming right off of that into a book launch. I don't know about you, but I, I would be exhausted. Yes. Well, that's, that's absolutely how I feel. Um, exhausted. But um, as I said earlier, to, 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 to be sort of a part of that coverage and that moment in history to be reporting for Vanity Fair and, and covering it for um, and the NBC show today, um, the um, CBC Canada, the BBC has been, it's, it's a great, it's a great honor. It's a great privilege. And, you know, I, I just did the very best job that I could do. I think it helped me enormously that I'd spent the past year of my life researching, writing, speaking to, you know, nearly for 50, 60 people um, about the Queen's reign, about her legacy. I mean, I managed to talk to her cameraman of 40 years, a wonderful man called Philip Bonham Carter, who had the most extraordinary access to the Queen. He was wonderful and had so many lovely anecdotes, many of which I, I relay in the book. And to have had access to those people, I've, I felt very lucky to have done that. Philip sadly died earlier this year, very suddenly. I felt very, um, very fortunate to have had that time with him before his sad passing, because he he shed such a different light on on his interpretation of the Queen from behind the lens and he was fascinating to speak with um so I do feel very I felt that I was very well prepared having having spent so much time researching and writing the new royals mm. well something we've actually never discussed on our podcast is how her majesty queen elizabeth balanced being a monarch with a mother of four you talk about this in the book and how she would juggle royal duties and her role as a mother um that I think is something, you know, trying to balance work and family routines, a lot of moms out there can relate to. Can you tell us a little bit more about how Queen Elizabeth managed this? Yes, I mean, it was it was difficult, particularly in the early days when, you know, she had two young children, she was queen at such a young age. And so there was an inversion of roles, really, because the queen had to be queen. And so it was really Prince Philip who stepped in as head of the household. Um, and, and I spoke to Robert Lacey, the, the wonderful historian and, and historical consultant for the crown. And we this was something that we discussed for the book. And, and he put it in a way that made complete sense to me that actually the queen was thrilled to have a second chance at becoming a mother with mm -hmm. Andrew and with Edward, because she was able to give it more knowing that she had just about got used to being queen and, and had that experience under her belt she was actually almost able to enjoy motherhood probably more the second time round. and you know I think a lot of the insight that I had whether that was through her cousin Lady Elizabeth Hanson or the people who worked with her very closely was I did feel I got a perspective of the queen as a mother as a grandmother and as a great grandmother and it, and that really brought her to life I think we for so many of us we were just so used to seeing her as the queen um the queen who gives a Christmas day speech um the queen at Royal Ascot um the queen you know doing her wonderful walkabouts but for me what was so enlightening was really understanding her I suppose uh, as a person um the person but the person who wore the crown yeah well I feel like before she passed away, I feel like every stone that needed to be overturned was overturned. And one of those was the queen ensuring the world knew her support of Camilla to one day become queen consort, which of course she now is. There was a mighty campaign, which some of our listeners probably don't remember. I remember, I, rem I didn't know it was called Operation PB per se, but coming from where Camilla was with her image in the 1990s to where she is today, 
I would call that a mighty campaign to rehabilitate her image. And it's and you, it, you refer to it in the book and not just you, but it, it is called Operation PB, of course, I assume standing for Parker Bowles. So yes. can, you, can you tell us about that, which you write about in the book? Well, when you consider that that Camilla was once, you know, the, the reviled mistress and, and, you know, very, very unpopular, um, it's, it is the most remarkable full turn and and metamorphosis her transition from mistress to queen consort is quite spectacular and um, you know partly masterminded by the likes of mark boland who i i spoke with for my book um and that early campaign to sort of rehabilitate camilla's image which was successful but of course was 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 um halted when the princess of wales died and it was sometime understandably, before that sort of campaign to bring Camilla back into public life could happen. I think it's largely down to Camilla, though, being her sort of wonderful, understated self and never trying to um, eclipse anyone, always being there as, as the support. And I, and I think, and I say this in the book, that she's going to be a wonderful support to, to the king. And, and, and she, you know, she's, she, he listens to her. She has a, she has opinions. She had an opinion on his aide, Michael Fawcett, and, and felt that that he had to go because of some of the damaging headlines that were coming out about the cash for access scandal. Um, you know, it was Michael Fawcett's head that rolled, the man who Charles once said he could never possibly do without. Well, Camilla managed to convince him otherwise, where others had never successfully done so. So I think Camilla is incredibly important. And um, just the fact that the king has referenced her in, in all of his major speeches um, is, you know, I think shows just how important she is to him. So to close us out, I want to ask you one more thing about this book. Can you tell us what was the most interesting piece of research you learned in writing The New Royals? Well, I think the opportunity to sit down with people who really knew the Queen best to get some understanding of her feelings about some of the key events during her reign and particularly the more recent ones makes it being I suppose what everyone was most curious about was 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 absolutely fascinating and as I said to sort of understand the person who wore the crown um those people really helped bring the queen um to life for me really understood who she was why duty was so important and I think also to, to to sort of get a get a real understanding of what of what the future looked like. I did I didn't know what the conclusion to my book was going to be really until I finished writing it. And I think the conclusion was that yes, we're going to have King Charles the Third, and I think he has you know every, every chance to be a brilliant king. But you know, undeniably, the future of the of the House of Windsor lies in in the Waleses as they are now. Um, the, the former Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. And, you know, that sense of continuity. Um, we have three kings now, Charles, William, and of course, George. And so, uh, you know, I think overall, it's an, it's an optimistic book. It's a positive book about the future of the royal family. And I think we all agree that we've had a ringside seat to history being made. I think there's going to be much more to come. We love the book and listeners, The New Royals, Queen Elizabeth's Legacy and the Future of the Crown. Katie's latest book came out yesterday, October 4th. Um, Katie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jessica and Rachel. It's lovely to be on with you and I hope to speak with you again on Podcast Royal soon.
Well, she was lovely. And I have a sweet story about Katie that I want to share really quickly. So long before I was writing nationally, she granted me an interview for my blog, The Duchess Commentary, which I started in 2019, knowing she'd probably get little to nothing out of a two-month-old blog at the time, three years ago. She's still just as kind today, three years later, as even as her star continues to rise and rise and rise. So I will never forget that kindness, Katie, and I aspire to be just like her. So thank you, Katie, for coming on the show. That was a great chat. Yes. Thank you so much. It was so nice to speak with you. Well, listeners, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Podcast Royal, where Jessica continues to deliver fantastic content. Email us at hellopodcastroyal at gmail.com, just like Mallory did. Maybe your email will get read on the air. And follow, rate, and review our podcast. We appreciate those five stars. Thank you so much for tuning into this monster episode 72 of Podcast Royal. We're back out of the morning period and back swinging. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks for episode 73. Bye. Bye.